Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Elix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. to welcome Ron Weiss, Professor of Bioengineering at MIT, the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, to help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Cade Shannon, and special guest host, Jake Beecraft, co-founder and CEO at Strand Therapeutics. Jake, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself and Strand? Absolutely. So happy to be here, Jazz. Um, Strand Therapeutics is a, is a company that, uh, that I actually co-founded with Ron. Um, I, I started my career as a scientist joining Ron's lab in, in 2013, uh, where we were looking at the emerging field, uh, was emerging at the time, uh, of messenger RNA therapeutics, thinking, you know, if, if this technology is really as influential as some of these companies are indicating it might be, um, then what will be the next technology and what can synthetic biology offer to messenger RNA to increase its applicability, increase its ability to access disease areas, um, and, and really create therapeutics that can, uh, can be smarter, um, almost think for themselves uh, through the incorporation of things like uh, synthetic gene circuits. Um, and so we incorporated that technology into messenger RNA over a number of years um, together along with a, a large team of scientists. Uh, and a few years ago, Ron, uh, myself, uh, Daryl Irvine at the Koch Institute, and another scientist from Ron's lab um, named Tisugu Katata uh, spun out Strand Therapeutics to commercialize that uh, that messenger RNA technology and been have been growing in the uh, in the Cambridge and Boston area for the last few years, um, developing those messenger RNA therapeutics in both oncology and and hopefully uh, beyond. Fantastic! Thanks for joining us and exciting that uh, you'll interview uh, your grad school advisor here as well. Uh, things will come full circle. <laughs> Fantastic, um, Ron. Let's uh, kick things off here. Can you share a brief intro with us? Yeah, so it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I look forward to talking with you guys. So I'm a, actually a computer scientist by training. And about a quarter century ago, as a graduate student at MIT uh, in computer science, I became fascinated with the notion that we might be able to program cells in the same way that we co program computers. And so I ended up picking up uh, kind of molecular biology skills I was working with Tom Knight, who was my PhD advisor, and also Jerry Sussman and Hal Abelson, and kind of shifted over from traditional computer science PhD to uh, what ended up being a synthetic biology PhD. And then I uh, got my first job at, um, as a faculty in Princeton in 2001. And I was there for about eight years uh, working on synthetic biology starting out with bacterial synthetic biology, but from the beginning, I've always been fascinated with the notion of using synthetic biology for therapeutic purposes. And around 2005 is when I realized that we kind of know enough about bacterial synthetic biology that we can begin to make the transition towards mammalian synthetic biology. And I've been shifting focus in the lab ever since to do more and more mammalian synthetic biology. In 2009, I came back to MIT and I uh, created the MIT Synthetic Biology Center. And I'm in the Department of Biological Engineering, also in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. And we've been focusing more and more on both the foundational aspects of synthetic biology mammalian systems. So how do you create regulation, cell-cell communication, the predictable, uh, devices and circuits to control uh, activity inside the cells, but also have been thinking about various areas where the notion of genetically programming cells somehow fundamentally changes the way you approach them. And uh, one of those is uh, cancer immunotherapy. Uh, we work also on programmable organoids. That's something of interest to us and, and vaccination. And I'm certainly particularly excited about the notion of 
taking RNA and using self-amplifying RNA um, as a way and, and then controlling expression from that RNA as a way to develop novel and effective therapies. And this is where you know, Jake joined the lab and really was fundamental. Jake Olson, uh, Tsuku, a former postdoc in the lab, another uh, of the co-founders of Strand, and really being able to create an exciting platform for uh, replicating RNA and demonstrating that that can really be used in vivo for therapeutic purposes. Fantastic, thanks Ron. And help us for our listeners kind of tie these, these strands together, no pun intended, uh, that you're talking about with your career. Um, what's been your North Star, kind of the, the, the common thread, if you will, uh, tying all your work together? Yeah, for, so for me, actually, my, my passion is to be able to uh, genetically program humans for health-related applications. Right? So the notion that you know, we, we start off as having a particular you know, genetic program in us, but that often fails. And you know, how can we create new genetic programs, whether it's encoded on DNA, whether it's encoded on RNA, whether that's something that we can embed into cells and then put into human. But really my motivation is coming up with kind of paradigm shifting approaches that allow us to genetically program humans uh, for therapeutic purposes. And to dive a bit deeper there, I'll pass it to Cage to talk about programming biology. So Ron, you mentioned that your academic career began in computer science, but you made a sudden shift towards synthetic biology during your time as a graduate student. I was wondering what motivated this change and how has your background in computer science helped shape your perspective of biology? Yeah, so. The transition happened when, uh, when it started happening when I joined Jerry Sussman and Hal Abelson and then also Tom Knight in this project called Amorphous Computing. And this was a computing project. And the goal there was to try to understand how, given the fact that uh, computers are getting smaller and cheaper, you know, what would happen if we would a were able to embed computing into everything? including like smart paint and smart dust. And so, you know, so this notion of being able to have really tiny computing elements that are, you know, really don't have a lot of resources, not a lot of computing resources, not a lot of power that can kind of uh, communicate locally with other nearby computing elements. And so the question was, how can we approach that? How can we think about programming abstractions that would help us overcome the challenges of having uh, possibly you know, tens of thousands or millions of little unreliable computing elements, uh, but still get reliable overall behaviors. And I was thinking about what would be a way to be inspired about programming abstractions. And I thought that biology would actually be a, a great source of inspiration so I started looking at various biological processes, including embryogenesis, and trying to understand what, what's going on in such biological processes as embryogenesis. How are they able to elicit really reliable behavior, reliable, predictable behaviors, despite the fact that the individual components, the cells and computing elements, if you will, are not reliable individually but as a whole that they're reliable. And so what I did is I began to simulate a variety of different uh, embryogenesis type of processes, such as neural tube formation, somite formation. These are really early embryogenesis type of uh, processes. And I was doing simulations. And I, at some point one day, I said that uh, I actually want to flip that arrow. And so rather than being inspired from biology on how to program computers, I wanna uh, use what I know in computing and try to actually genetically program biology. And so then uh, that kind of provided a spark and I, I teamed up more with Tom Knight and still Jerry Sussman and Hal Abelson were still my PhD advisor. And I helped Tom Knight set up a wet lab in the MIT artificial intelligence lab. 
And so, and then that's really how things got started. Um, and, you know, ever since then, I've been completely hooked into synthetic biology. And uh, in terms of how that helps, I, I think that uh, coming from a computer science background uh, certainly has advantages in, the, in this notion of always thinking about how to develop programs that describe behavior in a formal way, and then how to translate these high-level programs into an actual implementation that works in hardware. So I think this, this general notion of writing programs to describe behavior and then essentially compiling them down into uh, devices, whether it's electronic devices or biological devices that actually implement these programs has been one of the kind of overriding philosophies in the, in the lab on how do we approach synthetic biology. I think while this computer science background serves as uh, a, a good way to think about biology, it is also really important to think about how biology is not just the same as other engineering disciplines, but also how is it different? So what, what is it about biology that makes it a different engineering substrate? And what things can we borrow from other engineering disciplines, but what abstractions, what notions do we want to incorporate into synthetic biology that are really unique? So that, that's been kind of another guiding light in terms of uh, what we do. Uh, one thing that you touched on, but we'll love to give a little more details on is applying computer science principles to biology involves moving from a precise in silico environment to a noisy biological environment. How do you think this challenge can be addressed? Yeah, this is a great question. And in fact, I, I view it as twofold. One of them is how can we create reliable circuits and systems, the biology systems that are able to effectively attenuate noise. And so we, we work on a variety of different mechanisms that create kind of more digital binary responses. We use uh, some control theory to create feedback regulation such that the genetic circuits that we build are more reliable, more predictable, less influenced by uh, gene expression noise, less influenced by environmental noise or by noise in cellular resources. So I think that there's a lot of kind of engineering practices, engineering uh, mechanisms, circuit topologies, you know, such as feedback regulation, feed forward regulation, that can really help address and mitigate some of aspects of noise. So I think that's one important direction, but a synergistic direction is actually not to shy away from noise, but really think about ways by which we can actually exploit noise to create more reliable systems. So that there are, the, uh, we've published on that and there are examples in nature where nature actually benefits from the fact that there is noise, there is heterogeneity in the responses. And so some cells act in one way, some cells act in a slightly different way. And the fact that they have not fully synchronous, not identical responses can actually you know, provide various kinds of advantages to the overall, uh, not efficiency and robustness of the system, especially as environmental factors and as cellular factors change. In your mind, does the noise limit the potential applications of synthetic biology? I don't think noise limits what you can do with synthetic biology. You just have to take noise into account. Um, there, you know, you're not going to be able to exactly replicate the way a computer works, and that's not the goal. The goal is really to understand how to genetically program biology. So, in terms of the types of applications that we have in mind, noise is something that has to be considered. Noise is something that has to be taken into account. But ultimately, it's something that, in I think most circumstances is something that won't prevent us from achieving the, the overall objectives. Awesome. And so I'll pass it along to Jake to talk about uh, one of your recent papers. Great. You know, 
Ron, uh, when you're speaking about synthetic biology, one thing that always strikes me and in in an analogy that you have kind of pulled out that I have also stolen um, after working with you for so many years um, is this idea that you know, you have the slide that I've seen you present, which is on one side, there's a cell with a circuit board, right? And you say, this is how we think about how gene circuits work. And then on the other half of the slide, when you advance it, there's a, a picture of a burrito. And you're kind of saying, this is actually how biology works. Nothing, it, nothing has its own lane. Everything's kind of mixed together. And I think to the notion of noise that you were just touching on, it's just so, um, it, it, that picture in my brain has stuck since, you know, since I was a young scientist to really to really think about it um, and, and building on that actually in in 2009 you know you published this uh, this seminal paper um, the second wave of synthetic biology from modules to systems um, I've, I've heard you speak at length uh, about this and you know in fact it was a, a big thing that I had read um, while I was uh, considering graduate schools and what led me uh, down the path that ended at um, at your lab and so for for everyone listening here can you just describe um, what the second wave of synthetic biology represents and and maybe you know in the last 12 years since that paper came out where do you think the waves of synthetic biology have taken us yeah uh yeah great question Dick. um it's also been a pleasure to have you in the lab and i look forward to <laughs> interactions both uh professionally and also uh snowboarding wise so uh, <laughs> i think that with respect kind of the the uh, waves, if you will, in synthetic biology. Uh, initially, the kind of first wave was focused on creating, demonstrating proof of principle. So demonstrating things like uh, toggle switches, demonstrating things like oscillators, where you can demonstrate that we can uh, obtain control over cellular functions. And so seminal papers by uh, Jim Collins and Michael Elowitz that at the time we also published on engineered cell cell communication and uh, being able to create basic devices, regulatory devices and control their properties. And so I think those, you know, around the year 2000 really set the stage for synthetic biology. And the second wave focused then on understanding how to take those basic capabilities, toggle switches, oscillators, multi-input logic functions and begin to assemble them into larger systems. When now, you you know, they're really beginning to look like sophisticated programs where there's multiple interactions between various kinds of modules that control one another, that provide input to one another, that feedback onto each other. And all of a sudden, this begins to look like a real programmable environment where you can do things that really were not imaginable before. Things where you can tell the cells to remember something. And based on what happened in the past and what's going on now, to maybe change their functionality, to have the ability to have multi-step programs that execute something. And then, you know, one of the things that, for example, we're using that for is to control the development of organoids. So we start with uh, basically stem cells, induced pluripotency stem cells, and we drive them uh, to differentiate, uh, to liver organoids. And when the cells uh, mature enough, we can then activate a second layer of differentiation and maturation. So, so that capability is really, uh, I think, characterizing what the second wave was about. But we've now, um, I guess, hit this third wave where uh, there's actually multiple aspects of the third wave. I think one aspect is the ability to take these uh, functions and uh, demonstrate that they matter uh, both in terms of industrial applications uh, as well as clinical applications where, where all of these modules, uh, these safety switches, these multi-input logic functions that can really activate in specific cell types but not in other cells, I think are, are really making their way into the clinic. And I think they're gonna result in significant improvements in efficacy and safety of various kinds of therapies, you know, certainly for cancer, uh, but also, you know, vaccination, but also other kinds of, uh, for example, autoimmune diseases and, and other kinds of application areas. So I think that the transition uh, from the lab to the clinic is a really important one. 
but simultaneously, I think we're also gaining uh, more respect for the underlying biology and really trying to incorporate more systems biology and a deeper level understanding of, uh, of the biological systems in how we create synthetic circuits that operate properly, that operate um, in spite of cellular and environmental fluctuations. So I think the deeper understanding of biology is really changing the way we are now engineering systems more, um, you know, uh, we, we appreciate more and we take into account more uh, of the things such as uh, changes in cellular resources that are available uh, to, the, to the circuits and uh, crosstalk interactions, uh, multicellularity, uh, heterogeneity, uh, and so on. And I think also as part of that, we're also beginning to explore abstractions that are not just uh, kind of pure digital binary abstraction and trying to understand, you know, are there different ways that we don't necessarily, you know, use in, you know, in other environments that are really well suited for the biological substrate. For example, one of the interesting ones that actually we are in a sense barring from uh, computer science is the notion of neuromorphic computing. So programming cells using this notion of neuronal networks that were essentially neuronal networks, uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence has been inspired by the way the brain works. And those have resulted in really a, um, a fundamental shift in the way uh, computer programs for various kinds of applications, including you know, pattern matching applications in the way those, those programs are actually written. And what we're doing now is actually trying to bring it back to biology and understand how can we create genetic regulatory networks that operate like neuronal networks inside individual cells, but not using kind of neuronal interactions, but rather gene regulation. So, so I think that there's the third way really consists of these different aspects of you know, transition uh, to the clinic, to industry, a, a greater appreciation of the underlying biology and uh, a move towards finding new abstractions uh, that can work really well. Yeah, Ron, um, what, what you're bringing up here, and uh, I, I think what's most interesting um, to, to me when I think about the future of synthetic biology, um, coming from you know where synthetic biology was when I when I joined your lab, um, you know, almost ten years ago, um, to where we are now, this idea of of bringing things back to um, to, to computers and the the power of computer simulation um, and the incorporation of things like deep learning and AI um, and how they will uh, how they will play into both you know how we design genetic circuits and really how we design genetic features um, in, in general. I think that the the power of of computational design, especially um, right now, I think the most powerful tool uh, biologists can leverage are, are things like deep learning, um, applying it to things like uh, you know optimizing the the sequences of uh, of different uh, of different biological agents. Um, you know, one company that's made a lot of uh, made a large splash recently doing uh, doing things like that is uh, Dino Therapeutics, applying uh, AI and machine learning to the development of AAVs. Um, but what I'm also, you know, very passionate about, and and now, you know, what we're what we are evaluating at Strand and and working on is, you know, the the progression of deep learning and bioinformatics into uh, the design and the sequence optimization and the sequence engineering of messenger RNAs, both, you know, just the general sequences of optimizing different structural features, um, as far as into actually designing uh, the genetic. Uh, genetic circuits themselves. Um, and, and one thing I'm interested in, because you know I'm not <laughs> not nearly as involved in all the research that's going on in your lab as I as I may have been, you know, maybe three or four years ago. Um, where do you see kind of the the <laughs> synthetic biology is interesting because it is a biological engineering discipline that that birthed from computer science, and now with the the advancement of the field um, and the advancement of things like deep learning and AI and, and machine learning. Um, being able to now loop synthetic biology back around and merge it with uh, with AI and deep learning. Are there research interests of yours or places where you see that synthetic biology will continue to, you know, sort of 
do this mind meld between itself and, and computer science? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, there are multiple directions and kind of we'll see which one of them end up emerging and, and uh, being the dominant one, or it could be that we end up having uh, different approaches, some of them uh, useful for particular situations and uh, they're kind of domain specific. So you might end up having abstractions that work really well for bacterial system, for metabolic engineering in industry. Uh, something else would work for in vivo therapies with RNA. You could have something else that works really well uh, for organoids. And so I, so I think that um, it, there's going to be a lot of kind of domain specific uh, approaches. And it's not going to be just one type of approach that's going to make sense for one size fits all. So, for example, I, I think this notion of very regimented kind of uh, things that, that look like computer, you know, traditional computer science program programs using uh, well characterized parts that give us logic circuits that operate very uh, predictably and reliably. Uh, and those those things are are done uh, from a high level to using a compiler that finds the best kind of devices and puts these genetic circuit devices together. I think that's definitely going to have its place, uh, so that synthetic biologists would just be able to write these high level programs uh, that indicate exactly what they want to do. Uh, there will definitely be a room room for that. Uh, the the other thing you mentioned with respect to deep learning that's going to play a bigger bigger role. Uh, both at the sequence phase, so finding out for the individual devices uh, what is the best sequence to create uh, reliable behavior, you know, whether it's from an RNA molecule, uh, could be a DNA molecule, could be um, certain other certain aspects uh, of, of the, the regulatory uh, elements, whether, you know, promoters, genes, five prime UTRs, three prime UTRs, um, and so on. And uh, I also think that deep learning has a, a tremendous role in circuit optimization. So not just on the individual devices, but how these devices can be uh, brought together to create coherent systems. And that's at the single cell level. And then when you begin to think about multicellularity, uh, how does that scale up? So how can we use uh, both kind of more computer, you know, traditional computer science approaches as well as um, artificial intelligence, deep learning approaches to allow us to engineer uh, programmable organoids. And you know, maybe for those, we also need other kinds of abstractions that are more visual, right? So maybe, maybe I can indicate using some kind of a visual user interface what I want uh, a liver organoid to look like and how I want it to be connected to a pancreas or vasculature. So that, um, you know, in the same way that you think about engineering, you know, cars or planes, you know, there, there's really, you're, you're melding together uh, different kinds of approaches. And I, and I think the visual approach uh, can end up being quite useful. Uh, I think that uh, there's an opportunity for having the cells, you know, do learning by themselves. So figure out ways by which we can actually uh, engineer cells to, to learn how to be better performers of particular functions. Uh, so there's gonna be an opportunity there. And, and you know, who knows what the future holds, but I, I think it's, you know, it's gonna be interesting. And I, I think ultimately we will have uh, kind of domain specific approaches, just like in the same way that right now, there's not uh, a single computer program that is used for everything. And there's constant evolution of uh, programming languages and programming approaches, including including deep learning, I envision, uh, and, and they're domain specific, I envision something similar to that happening with respect to synthetic biology. Thanks for that insight, Ron. Um, so I'll pass it back to Cage now um, to talk a little bit about uh, applications and uh, applications of synthetic biology. So, Ron, in your recent work, and actually this was the some of the technology that you spun out into Strand, 
your group developed self-replicating RNAs encapsulated in lipid nanoparticles as a multifunctional immunotherapeutic for treating cancer. How do you think that this approach meets gaps in cancer immunotherapy? So, so to have uh, effective uh, cancer immunotherapies, it really uh, takes more than just uh, a single element. You really need to think about this uh, as a system level uh, design system level approach that incorporates multiple features. And so you want to make sure that you have uh, therapeutic elements that can reach the appropriate cells. You want to make sure that they activate in, in the right cell types and don't damage healthy cells. So for that, we've been uh, able to demonstrate these multi-input uh, functions, these multi-input logic elements that are able to detect various biomarkers inside the cell, such as microRNAs, and then make a decision about uh, what cell type that is. And if it's a tumor cell, then these circuits can activate a therapeutic program. And if it's a healthy cell, they may not want to activate any kind of therapeutic pro program and, and just shut themselves off. So cell type specificity is really important. Uh, but it's not just that. It's also how much are you making of your therapeutic protein? So it's important that you make the right amounts. Uh, and a lot of times that means make a lot of it. And so the, uh, one of the cool features about these self-amplifying RNA is that you can deliver a single RNA molecule into the cell and then it begins to replicate itself. And ultimately the single RNA molecule can end up having as much as 200,000 RNA molecules in the individual cells. And those, those 200,000 RNA molecules can basically be pumping out lots and lots of the therapeutic protein such that it has its desired effect. Uh, and so, so the when, where, how much, uh, what are you making, uh, what combination, and what's the timing as well. So oftentimes you'll want to activate uh, certain therapeutic elements in the beginning. So you want to, for example, be able to uh, create an inflammatory environment. You want to be able to recruit uh, antigen-presenting cells that would be able to pick up these neoantigens from inside the tumor cells. And those neoantigens would then be used as indicators of tumor cells. How are tumor cells uh, aberrant in their behavior. And so these antigen-presenting cells would then be directed to go back to the lymph nodes and educate uh, your T cells uh, to be able to detect and then ultimately destroy the, the tumor cells. So it would be some kind of a combined effect from uh, what you do directly to, to these tumor cells, as well as kind of the assisted immune response. And so You'd want to express different uh, inflammatory mechanisms, different inflammatory molecules in the latter stages, ones that help recruit the CD8 T cells into the tumor and make sure that the tumor is really uh, an environment that's not immunosuppressive, that allows the CD8 T cells to carry out their intended actions. So, for example, you know, remove checkpoint inhibitors at the right time. So, so this, essentially this orchestration of these events that is, you know, time-specific, cell type-specific, uh, location, overall location-specific, uh, amplitude-specific, all of these things uh, in principle can be orchestrated by uh, programs that we can embed onto these RNA molecules. So you recently co-founded Strand to, with Jake to explore this technology and to apply synthetic biology to RNA therapeutics and develop the first platform for the creation of programmable long-acting mRNA drugs capable of delivering precise, multifunctional, potentially curative treatments with a single dose. Can, Ron, can you tell us about your journey with Strand from conception to spin out? Yeah, so... Um... It, I guess it started uh, now about a decade of, uh, or so ago 
when we were actually writing this uh, grant proposal to DARPA, and we were proposing to uh, do cell type specific identification uh, for cancer immunotherapy, and we're thinking also about uh, other other application areas. And the DARPA program manager uh, asked us, well, what do you think about this uh, self-replicating RNA? Do you think that that uh, has possibilities? Uh, and I read a couple of papers about it. Actually, uh, one of them from Andy Gill, who, um, and uh, was not in, was not in my lab, but they were able to show that they can encode multiple units of gene expression onto a single RNA molecule that then replicates itself. And that just, uh, to me, is just very fascinating. I said, "Wow, this is this is a molecule that uh, and a capability that I really need to have in the lab." And so we revised this uh, DARPA proposal and ended up um, kind of refocusing on this RNA replicon and beginning to think about ways by which we can take not just constitutive expression of uh, these genes of interest, but how can we really embed synthetic biology regulation onto this platform? And uh, Tosuku joined the lab and Jake uh, joined the lab. And I, and I think in the same way that I just was completely fascinated by this technology. They also uh, fell in love with it and, and saw the possibilities. And uh, with Tosuku, with Jake, um, and a few other people in the lab, we created what, what we're calling uh, Alpha Team, which is based uh, a, a take on, on this uh, fact that the uh, RNA replicant came from Alpha Virus. And uh, we began to explore uh, how to create various kinds of regulatory mechanisms uh, onto the single RNA molecule that was still able to have multiple uh, units that can be independently regulated. And so Tosuka and Jake really uh, created this amazing platform in the lab demonstrating uh, long-lived expression. So uh, both in vitro and in vivo, uh, weeks and sometimes more than weeks of expression from just uh, single RNA molecules. Uh, they're able to demonstrate that uh, you can have these RNA binding proteins that can regulate expression uh, that can be uh, produced from the RNA molecule and be used to regulate expression from that same RNA molecule. Uh, they've been able to, to demonstrate small molecule control, uh, cell type specificity by being able to detect, for example, microRNA expression profiles. Um, we had uh, another important, Lila was another uh, important, uh, she was another important postdoc in the lab that really uh, helped create this platform, and uh, Velia was another one. So we really had a, a fantastic team. Uh, and as Jake was uh, getting closer to graduation, uh, it was really clear that Jake had a passion for entrepreneurship, and he wanted to take this platform and and bring it to you know, ultimately to the clinic via the creation of a startup and. Um, Jake and Tosuku just uh, really took the initiative and, and with a tremendous amount of effort and, and dedication, were able to create a really this appeal, very appealing uh, story uh, that ended up becoming Strand and, and being able to raise money for it. And, and ultimately, you know, after uh, Jake graduated, they uh, opened up Strand and, and created the lab and were able to recruit uh, a great team to work with them. And so it's been you know, an absolute pleasure for me to see uh, what they've been able to create and you know, uh, play a small role in that and, and continue to interact with them. So I, I, I interact with, with Strand uh, on a weekly basis and um, it's just uh, really exciting to see the progress that they've been able to make. Great. So. Jake, Strand is currently focused on developing mRNA therapeutics for treating solid tumors. Can you tell us a little more about the company and why you chose to start here? Absolutely. So to, to me, um, the, the fundamental 
thesis of, of Strand is, can we harness the power of self-replicating messenger RNAs? Um, and in order to invest in it, in order to work at the company, in order to be a part of this process, you have to believe that over time, we'll be able to leverage that platform in ways that others uh, in, in the space, you know, like Ron said, um, you know, he was reading papers on replicating RNAs. So we did not create the idea of self-replicating messenger RNAs. Um, what I think we did start at MIT and have now vastly progressed at, at Strand with, with of course, the, the help of, of Ron, as, as he said, he, he interacts with our, uh, our synthetic biology team on a weekly basis. Um, or, or we're leveraging and creating a platform that utilizes self-replicating RNAs that makes um, them more tolerated in the body, that makes them uh, more specific, makes them safer, uh, makes them able to go into new and exciting areas of therapeutics. Um, and so in, in order to uh, kind of build a company around that area, um, you, you obviously need a place to start. And I think the lowest hanging fruit for uh, something like messenger RNA, specifically self-replicating messenger RNA, that has uh, an inherent level of immunogenicity or sort of immune stimulation that you're going to have to fight against. Um, the, the first place to start, in, in my opinion, uh, is immuno-oncology because the, you know, a number of the, the bars are lower, of course, and you can even leverage the immune stimulation. Um, if you go into the tumors, for instance, you can leverage the immune stimulation as a mechanism. Um, but it, it gives you a way and a, and a foothold um, into the market when you're, when you're thinking entrepreneurially, you know, how am I going to leverage this platform that theoretically in the future could have unlimited potential across so many different disease uh, application areas? Um, you need to start with, you know, where is the low-hanging fruit that I can start to get a foothold now, where I can start to create a platform, where I can start to build a team, where I can, you know, build out manufacturing capabilities, where I can get huge human data um, and also have a, a, an impact on patients, right? And also create therapeutics that will have real lasting value to patients. And to us, when we looked across that landscape and we looked at what the Replicon could do at the time, um, solid tumor immuno-oncology made the most sense. Um, we started, you know, even at MIT, Ron and Daryl um, did some of the early solid tumor work with, uh, with the Replicon um, and we're just seeing these unbelievable uh, sort of effects uh, uh, and uh, a postdoc in Ron and Daryl's lab um, named uh, uh, Ying Zhang uh, was working on this, uh, working on the solid tumor approach and, and he, we, they eventually published a paper in Nature Cancer, I believe, uh, in the fall of, of 2019 um, that just showed really the applicability of how this platform could be used as a solid tumor immuno, uh, immuno-oncology agent. Um, and that really gave us kind of the, the gasoline to start the process. And, and as we built the company and as we built uh, what we call our platform engineering team, which is really an umbrella that encompasses molecular biology, synthetic biology, and aspects of our process development team, um, that platform, uh, the, the, the platform is always pushing towards, you know, let's make the replicon more tolerable. Let's make it last longer. Let's make it safer. Let's make it more cell type specific, right? Let's get into a use case where we can now start deploying the replicon in all sorts of, of new areas. Um, and I think that is the trick of building a, a real entrepreneurial venture, right? Um, you know, what's your minimal viable product, but what is your overarching mission? And, and I think our minimal viable product was obviously an immuno-oncology agent. You know, our goal is to be in the clinic doing clinical trials uh, less than or pretty much three years, three to three and a half years after launching the company. I think for a, for a brand new um, for a brand new platform, that is uh, that is a really wild thing to be able to do. Um, but at the same time, uh, having a pipeline uh, and a sort of uh, uh, opportunity landscape that I believe is inherently unlimited in the ways that in the ways that we can go about solving different uh, different diseases at their core, um, you know, that's the that's the real promise of of the, how the platform will deliver. Thanks, Jake. And now I'll pass it off to Chaz to close us off. Before we come to a close here, folks, uh, a few rapid fire questions to cap things off. Uh, Ron, uh, if, you, if you do us a favor here and, and, and break out your crystal ball, uh, we really love to kind of ask our guests, where will we be in 2050? And, 
in particular for you, where will synthetic biology be uh, in 2050? So 2050 is a few decades away. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think uh, the general notion of uh, being able to you know, reprogram ourselves is going to be is going to be there and, and be able to overcome uh, many genetic diseases that we currently are facing, but also um, improve the capabilities of our organs, uh, be able to create organs that uh, resist diseases better, that have better metabolic functionality uh, and, and possibly uh, other kinds of functionality as well. So I think that's, um, you know, it's quite possible that that will happen. And Jake, can you describe 2050 for Strand Therapeutics? Where do you think you will be? I, I agree with Ron on, uh, on how synthetic biology will take over and, and engineer in our body. I think that Strand um, as a company will continue to grow and continue to uh, evolve. Uh, where I think, you know, truly futuristically, you know, three decades into the future where messenger RNA will be able to take hold and be able to uh, fit into larger, I think, human exploration and development ambitions. Um, one of the areas I see messenger RNA being uh, hugely impactful in is, is space travel, um, even just to, to replace general biologics. Um, you know, if you can develop a, a, a robust system for injecting messenger RNA, you know, into the muscle that can create biologics uh, into your body, you solve a lot of your supply chain issues with all of the different sorts of biologics that you would need to bring um, you know, to a moon base or to Mars, right? If you can just produce them at the, at the site and, and with something like self-replicating messenger RNA, you can do it with a very low dose. Um, I think that, you know, when we're talking three decades into the future, we're going to be able to unify things like bio biotech supply chains. I think the idea of individual supply chains for individual drugs um, in, in biologics can eventually collapse. Um, I'm, I believe that mRNA will absolutely be a major player in that game. And I think that Strand as a company will continue to stay, um, you know, our, our culture is such that we're never satisfied. Even if we were the leaders in the field, we wouldn't be satisfied, right? We want to stay at the bleeding edge and continue to compete with ourselves. Um, and so as the medical field, if the biotech field continues to advance, we will continue to advance and, and stay on the very forefront of that, whether that's you know, providing the medicines for space travel, uh, uh, and and as uh, you know, Elon delivers the population to uh, to the moon and Mars, um, and further than that, just fundamentally fixing disease, as Ron had said, fundamentally um, being able to go in and and you know perturb any organ in the body um, in a way that is uh, you know at first corrective of diseases, but eventually hopefully optimization, right? Uh, uh, cor uh, not just correcting an illness, but adding to longevity, adding to uh, health and wellness. That's uh, that's where I think we all want to be. Ron, one last question for you. Uh, as you wrap things up here, any closing thoughts or, or shameless plugs you'd like to share with the listeners? Shameless plugs? Uh, yeah, everyone should join Synthetic Biology. We, um, I think, are experiencing what, what I think, and I'm a little bit biased, is really uh, a kink in the curve, like a, a real transformation that's taking place. And I think that uh, we'll look back at these times and really see this as uh, a major uh, historical moment where we're able to really begin to take control um, of our, you know, bodies and our health in ways that were not possible before. And, you know, comparable <clears throat> to the effects that antibiotics, for example, had on the on the human health condition. I think that. Uh, synthetic biology, but, you know, incorporated not by itself, but really as part of the biotech revolution that's taking place now uh, is, is just going to be really regarded in history as, as transformative. And Jake, our final question, how can our listeners learn more about your work in Strand? 
So, uh, you know, direct updates. Uh, we're very active, both myself and Strand, on both LinkedIn and Twitter. Everyone's welcome to to follow along with with what we do there. Follow along on our website where we post and and keep things up to date on on what's going on. Um, uh, also, has to do with job opportunities that happen at the company. If people are um, uh, or or you know just ways to to get in contact with us. If um, you know people are looking uh, in across the industry looking for partnerships or investment opportunities or whatnot. Um, I would say stay posted on Twitter most uh, specifically, especially to the company's uh, social media as we continue to grow. I think in the next six months, uh, we'll be creating uh, more content uh, ourselves. I've been uh, I've been writing for Forbes for the past uh, six months or so. Um, and now I think as a company, we're starting to you know take the role of general uh, education of, of the public uh, more seriously. And so in the next six months, I hope that we'll have more communication initiatives and people should um, stay close to our social media channels as we start to to announce those and um, really teach the public you know what we've seen over the past uh, over the past year of COVID is that um, people didn't really notice how much it, people outside of biotech didn't notice how much innovation was going on within our field um, and there is an incredible thirst for that knowledge so we are um, hoping to be partial stewards of getting that out into the world as well and and just keeping people appraised of all the amazing work both synthetic biology mRNA and the broader biotech field is uh, is going to bring forward. Fantastic. Thank you, Ron and Jake, for an absolutely incredible episode. We're very grateful for your time. Thank you again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us, Jess. Our pleasure. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.